0: The year was about 220 AD. The Christian church was growing and it was growing fast. More and more people were coming to faith. More and more people were excited about what God was doing. Many good things were going. One of the things that was not so good was the fact that they had so many people coming to faith that they didn't have a lot of teachers. They didn't have a lot of people who could do teaching and so they were very concerned about you know a lot of strange things can happen if people are not taught and they're not taught well and so what happened during that time there was more and more people that are growing through this i mean that were coming you know christ and that's wonderful but you know if there's not someone to teach them some weird things can happen and they did about this time what was going on there was a man that was there who was from a fairly wealthy family he was very smart He picked up stuff very quickly. He was a good speaker. People just, one of those guys, kind of a charismatic personality that he was terrific. And people were very excited about him. And he started gathering a church around him. And the church was growing. And things were going great until people didn't recognize that he was kind of changing his theology a little bit. He had taught the Christian faith. And he taught about the fact that we believe there's only one God. We worship only one God. And But this guy was not telling them that what he was also doing is he was taking lectures from a guy who was very powerful, another good, smart guy, a guy by the name of Cerdo. Cerdo, C-E-R-D-O. And he was also a very sharp guy, and he had his own views. And finally, what happened is Cerdo said, I'd like to train you and let you see what's going on, because I've got a lot to teach you. And So this young man said, yeah, sure, and he started doing this. But the more that he did this, the more weirder it seemed to get. In fact, what happened is this young man, he's hearing this going, he said, Serto, he's teaching, he said, you know, I know that you've understand the scriptures about, you know, in the Old Testament and how we believe in only one God, but he said, that's really not true. There's really two gods. Now, I don't know about you, but there should have been at that point, everybody in the church should have gone, or like, you know, time to get another pastor. But he didn't. And he kept listening to this guy. And the guy was very persuasive. And he basically said, sure, think about it. There's really not just one God. There's two gods. There's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God who's the one about judgment and hailstones coming down and people being zapped. And that's a terrible kind of thing. That's the bad God. But here is the good God the God of the New Testament, the God who is kind, who loves babies and children and has wonderful stories that he tells. And this poor young man who hadn't gotten a lot of training was going, wow, this guy's amazing. Serto's remarkable, and I guess he's got to be right. And he started teaching this, and more people started following him, and more and more people saying, yeah, we don't need that Old Testament stuff anymore. I mean, all that stuff about laws and commandments, we don't need it. And finally, this young man by the name of Marcion, not to be confused with Martian. Okay, when I was young, there was my favorite Martian. That tells how old you are, if you remember, if you remember reading, uh, seeing that one. You saw it too, huh? I don't feel so bad. Marcion was the name of this guy, and more and more people kept coming to him. And suddenly, the other churches started to realize we've got a big problem. And it's happening right here, and it's getting worse. Because more and more people were coming to Marcion, and they were saying, yeah, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. All that stuff, you can get rid of it. In fact, what he did, said, you know the Bible that we have right now? You don't really need it. The only things you need are 11 of the chapters from the Apostle Paul and a portion out of the Bible. That's all you need. Just follow me, and here's where we're going to go. And you can see why some people go, yeah, he's smart, he's sharp. And what they didn't realize, this guy was heading down the road of disaster. And he was going to become one of the, I'm going to say great, because he wasn't great. He was one of the worst of the heretics who came and turned away from God because of that. It's interesting. Marcin was excommunicated because of the strange, weird stuff that he was teaching. The man who excommunicated him was his father. who realized that his son had somewhere gotten off the track from this guy Serto, and he recognized that his son was way off the track. Now you might think, "What does this have to do with the series that we're talking about?" Well, it's really important because when we deal and when we talk about this, we're talking about how important it is for the Old Testament. And this is particularly important for us because we are living in a culture today among Christian culture where there's not much talking about the Old Testament like there used to be. It's understandable. You know, would you rather maybe, you know, read the book of Leviticus or would you like, you know, Romans? Well, I'll take Romans any day, you know, but Leviticus is still important. It's still part of God's word. But what's happened today in our culture today is more and more people are moving away from, they may read it, you know, like, like me. I try to read almost every day, going through the Bible again and again, and I know many of you do too. That's good, but the question is are, do you know what you're reading and what does it mean? What's the significance of it? And so what's going on here that's important is it's saying do we still recognize that the Old Testament is the foundation on which God built the New Testament? And that Old Testament, you can call it the Old Testament if you want, but it's still God's revealed word. The Old Testament is that foundation upon which everything else is built. But what's happening in Christian culture is there's less and less reading of the Old Testament, and what it is, it's usually just kind of slanted over real quickly and people move on. That is a great danger. It's more dangerous, particularly in the more liberal churches, where it's like, well, We don't really have to believe those kind of things about fireballs coming out of heaven or things like that. We're we're modern people. We know those kind of things don't happen, and we'll just take the things that we like, and we'll move on from there. You see, things never really change. Over time, the same things keep happening. And what was happening here was not good. Because what we see in the scriptures is the Old Testament is the foundation upon which the rest of it is built. And when you turn away from it, when you don't listen to it, when you don't hear it, when you don't grow with it, we're in trouble. And what we're gonna be doing now is we're starting a new series about the 10, we called about the 10 words, we called it. If you, um, the 10 words of life, talking about the 10 commandments for us today. And I think this is so important because for nearly 2,000 years, Most Christians, if you went up to them and say, can you tell me what the Ten Commandments are, most people in those era would be able to tell you. Everybody's got to know that. During confirmation, you had to learn what the Ten Commandments were. Today, right now, if I had every one of you stand up and tell me the Ten Commandments, would you be able to do it? I have to think for a minute, would I be able to do it? It's interesting, if you think about it, these are things that have been so significant from centuries and how important that is. And so what we want to do in this series, we have the Ten Commandments, is to work through them. Some of them are a little longer, some are shorter. The one we have today is very short, but very key. And it's very, very important. So if you would, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Exodus, if you haven't already, and you want to go to chapter 9. Chapter Nine. The context of this, let me go over just very, very briefly with you. As you know, what happened? We have, even in the prayer that I did, and we're in the scripture read, and we talked about the time when the people of Israel were in captivity. They got free, going across the ocean. God prepared a way for them. God took them through the wilderness. God gave them food when they needed it. God gave them water when they needed it. water out of the rock. We all know that. Most of us all know that story. A wonderful story. But what we're picking up here is now in the third month, this is, this is what this passage that we have here, this is chapter 19, verse 1. Here's the very significant thing that starts happening. This is Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, where it says here, in the third month, the third month since the Exodus, on the same day, the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. I've been there. I've walked in there, I've gone up on Jebel Musa, the mountain up there. It's hard to believe that anything could grow there or live there. I mean, it's just wasteland. It's just hard to believe. But it was important because God was going to meet with his people in that place that seems like such a desolate place. He said, so they entered the wilderness of Sinai after they departed from Rephidim, an area that they were through, they entered the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness, and Israel camped there in front of the mountain. As you've heard many times, mountains are always important things. when We look at them in scriptures. A lot of neat things have happened on mountains, particularly here, where God is going to, a little bit later, we get further down the road, talking about the fact how God brought the law to the people. But we see in this passage so Moses went up to the mountain to God and the mountain and excuse me and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Now notice what he says to him. He said to them. He called them to the mountain and said, "Listen, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites." Kind of like the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Jacob with one, and, and the Israelites in the other. And then he says in this beautiful phrase, "You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought brought you to me." It's a beautiful idea. Now, wings. I mean, excuse me, wings. Uh, you know, things like we're talking about here when we're talking about eagles. They can have a negative side. You know, they like tack other things and stuff like that. But here it's talking it in a very good sense. He said, you remember with all you went through, all the suffering you went through with Pharaoh? Remember all these places where we went from place to place and we ran out of water and then got water and then we needed food and we got quail? When you went through all these things, how do you think you got there? And he uses this beautiful phrase, not literally, but metaphorically. He said, what did I do for you? Israel, I carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to me. By the way, that passage is used earlier in the New Testament as well, in Deuteronomy. A phrase of the idea of God caring for his people. You get that idea of swooping down and gathering his people. And so he said, he said you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to me. He's saying, you're my people. You're my chosen people. You're the ones I've chosen to make a covenant with, a covenant that will be with you forever. And so what he does in this passage, particularly if you notice the ones where I have it kind of like in yellow, he has these key verses and key phrases that are right at the heart of what he's talking about. Now, he, God says to Moses, speaks to the people. Now, if you will listen to me, God's speaking for the people. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my Covenant. Again, covenant, one of the key words. That can covenant made with God made with his people. He said, if you will be carefully keep my covenant, notice this phrase, you will be my own possession out of all the people. The Hebrew phrase here is this one, Segula. Segula is this idea, this idea of like precious metal or precious gold gold, things you have that are significant to you, that are important to you. He said, you know what? I'm gonna make you be my, my people. You're going to be my possession. And he goes and talking about, you're my people that I love and I care for. And he's saying, out of all these cultures, remember all these nations were all around Israel. Moabites, Canaanites, all the Ites people, all around them. But God said, I take you, Israel, I've chosen you. And he said, throughout all the earth is mine, and you're going to be, and notice his key phrase again in yellow, my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. That phrase never appears in the Old Testament until right here, right here in Exodus is when he says it. He said, you're going to be my kingdom of priests. What's odd about that is at this time, people had not had the priests. It was going to come very quickly after this, but there hadn't been. Now, of course, obviously the people around them were having people that were going, having sacrifices and stuff, and they knew what priests were, but Israel did not have them at this point. They're going to very quickly. But he said, you know what? You're going to be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Unlike the nations around them that have turned away from God, and some of them, they're just awful. He said, you're mine. You belong to me. You're the chosen ones. You'll be my kingdom of priests and the holy nation. He said, these are the words that you're to say to the Israelites. Now notice if you would on this verse 7. And by the way, if you're following this in your Bible, it's a little bit hard to do it. It's not exactly clear how many times Moses goes up and down the mountain. Some think it's two. Some think it's three. We're not quite sure. It really doesn't matter. The point is he's going up quite a bit and going down. But here's the point of it. He said, after Moses came back from being on the mountain, he summoned the elders of the people and he set before them these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded. Now notice this phrase. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. And everybody should have said, yeah, sure. Really? Has anybody heard about like a golden calf? Like... You know, the people saying, you know, what's Moses doing up there in the mountain? Take all your jewelry, all your gold, all your silver, let's melt it down. And what we're going to do is we're going to pour out and, well, and, you know, what happens? Moses comes down and says, you know, they're all having parties here. They're all going crazy. What happened here? And what is this ugly thing out of gold over here? And, and you know, and then he, one of the most stupid things for him to say He goes, well, you know, uh, the people just told me that they did it, and we just put it in there, and and there it was. And Moses goes, really? You can't get anything? I mean, that's so lame. Can't you get anything better than that? See, all the people said, we're going to do what the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words to the Lord. So notice what he does here. The Lord said to Moses, and here's getting pretty serious. He said, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud, so the people will hear me speaking, and you'll always believe you, believe to believe you. Then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. Now notice what he's saying. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be in the presence of God, holy God. And he says there's going to be a cloud that's going to come, that's going to overwhelm us. And you're going to have the word that's often referred to theophany. An experience of being in the very presence of God. So notice what it says here in this passage. And the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. In other words, the whole point is, if you're going to meet with God, you better be looking good. Okay. In other words, you need to prepare yourself to say, it's not like saying you're going to come up with flip-flops. Hey, God, how's it going out there? You want to talk? It's like, you don't do that in the presence of God. It's this idea of the privilege of being in the, per, in the presence of the living God. And he's saying, you need to get ready. Get yourself ready for something like you've never experienced in your life. You're going to meet God. He said, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes, have them be ready on the third day, because on that day, the Lord's going to come down on the mountain in Sinai in the sight of all the people. Whoa. Here it is, here it comes. He says, put boundaries for the people. Don't let them start getting too close. He said, don't put boundaries around the people around the mountain say, quote, be careful that you don't go up on that mountain or touch its base. Notice this, anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. Whoa, that ought to get your attention. It's saying, I am gonna give you this unbelievable opportunity to be in the presence of the God of the universe, but we're doing it my way, not yours. And so you're gonna do all that you can to prepare yourself to be in the presence of God Almighty. And so he says in this passage, verse 13, he said, no man may touch him. Instead, if he does, he touches him, he'll be stoned or shot with arrows. No animal or man should live. When the ran horn sounds a long blast, they may go up to the mountain, that is to be able to meet with God. Now notice what's happening here in this passage. It's saying there is going to be a moment where mankind, as broken as we are in our own struggles and hurts, he's telling the people, you can be in the presence of your creator in a way like you have never experienced it. It goes on and we I had to skip a whole bunch of stuff, but it talked about how the fire came down and all the things that were happening and the smoke was coming and it was, the ground was shaking and people are scared to death. And there's this moment where they realize we are in the presence of a holy God. And who are we that we could do this and the people are just about broken and before the Lord, like, I can't believe, what a privilege. And then God says, okay, you know what? Now let me tell you that now you, the privileged people, let me tell you what I'm going to ask you, not just ask, I'm going to tell you to do. And this is where it brings us into the next chapter, extra chapter Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. It says right here, command, commandment number one is what we're looking on today. Again, there's ten, we're going to look on one. And God spoke all these words. Saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out to the land of slavery. And here is the key phrase. You shall have no other gods before me. It's exclusive. You'll have no other gods, just me. And that's so important, again, because these people were living in a culture where they had multiple gods, plenty of gods. And he said, you see all these gods and goddesses all around you? Yeah, that's not for you. I've given you the privilege to be in the presence of your creator. And he's saying, what you're going to do, you're not going to have any other gods but me. And that is such an important part. It's neat that the Ten Commandments starts that way. Exclusive allegiance to our creator. That's what makes this passage so powerful. It starts off in such a wonderful way. Now notice what it says when we do this, and when we think about it, it talks about the Israelites surrounded by many gods and goddesses, but saying, this is unique. Again, as we know the term monotheism, one God. Almost all the other nations around them, they had this God, that God, this goddess, that goddess. This is like, nope, I'm not having any of that around. There's only one God. It's me, the God that I showed myself to you, showed myself sufficient that you could have a relationship with me. And again, that was very unique. The Jewish people, of course, as God told them what to do, saying you're gonna have, it's monotheism, there's only one God. All the other gods, have all the other gods and stuff, you're not gonna have it. You're going to follow me. And so the point is, there's no other gods. There's no God but Yahweh. Some people may use a different term if you wanna talk about it, but the point is, there's no God but Yahweh. And that's in particularly important for us because we'd say, well, who's gonna in this room's gonna really do that? I mean, that's Old Testament thing. It is, but the point is still the same. It's saying God is still telling us there's no other God. That is exceptionally important for us today because most of us, I'm adding myself and part of the group, we so much can get drawn into other things that become our gods and our relationships. And that's why the Ten Commandments, God gave it to us. It was a long time ago. I know it was. I know it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. But he's saying, here's what I've done for you. Here's what I'm telling you, you must do. There'll be no other God. Now, some people think, you know, I've heard this from a couple of people say, don't, you know, you talk about there's no other gods. He said, isn't that rather arrogant to say there's only one God? It's not arrogant if it's true. If it really is true, it's not arrogant. It's saying we have one God. God, our creator, has said there's going to be one God. And when you turn around from having one God, the one that the our redeemer, he said, you've gone off the tilt. You don't know what you're doing. This passage is so important because it's asking this question for each of us, saying, what's my God? All of us, in many ways, have ways that we look at it we start thinking, I would never say that. I would never even think that. But the reality, rather than having a full commitment to God, there's other things that seem to take those places in our life. Karl Barth, the famous theologian uh, who was reading a lot about Martin Luther, and so he kind of took some of his stuff in Luther and put them together. And listen to what he said, what do we mean when we talk about being a person who has got totally commitment to God? He put it this way, a God that is, in which humans put their trust. This is what he's describing this is, Here's what it looks like to have a other god than the one we worship. A god is that in which humans put their trust. Now, notice some of the things that we do, such as wisdom. Darn, I'm good. World's sure lucky to have somebody as smart as I am. He says, yeah, well, some people, that's their god. He says, what about power? Look around the world and see the people that are seeking power, thinking that's going to find them help and hope. It's not going to happen. Put their trust in power, such as wisdom, power, favor. Want to make sure you're hanging with the right people. You're right with the right group, because you want to be with them rather than a full relationship with God. What about money? Many people would say that's probably the one of the most important things that we see people going through. That's going to be my God. Now none of us in this room would ever say, Hi, I put all my life stuff in for God, but it's really only about me. We wouldn't say that. But the reality is the way we act, the way we respond, you find out what really is important to you. As people say, well, you know, the money doesn't really money, married, you know, doesn't bother me. Wait till it's taken away and see what happens. And so he said, What about friendship? What about honor, money, our deeds, our achievements? It keeps bringing us back to the question Are you fully committed to the Lord our Creator, who brought us into existence, who chose us as God's people? Now, again, we're talking about Old Testament, but obviously, it goes right into the New Testament. And in fact, you can see how Paul and Peter. Use the Old Testament to write the New about saying, we are now in the New Covenant, and we are now God's chosen people who's given us the privilege to share the good news of the gospel with a world that doesn't know that there's a creator who knows them, who can love them and care for them. And he says it's all there in the Ten Commandments. A God that is with humans put to the trust, such as wisdom, power, favor, friendship, and honor, money, and our deeds and our achievements are often more important. And so the question that we end is, do we have any other gods beside the one that we've been worshiping today? Is there anything in your life, in your heart, that's more important? Because you realize that's more important than really knowing God and serving him. Those are hard questions to ask. What is your God? Who is your God? Am I fully committed? Or I'm sort of committed? Or do we clearly understand that we have a great God who's called us into the fullness of his life and to live a life that lives for him? Father, we thank you for this passage as we start this season In the summer season, as Father, we're going to be working through this area. We pray that you'd be with us. Remind us again, no other gods, only you, Lord. You're the only God that's worthy of our worship, worthy of our love. And we would ask that you'd help us to be able to grow. We ask, Lord, as we work through this series, that, Lord, you would use it for good in each of us. And that we'd be glad that we studied your scriptures, even though it is from the Old Testament. But even more so, we'd be so thankful to see how you've worked in our lives and the way you continue to work within us. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.